Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains, the curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Joel Kotkin. Uh, he is the Presidential Fellow in Urban Futures at Chapman University. It's in the city of Orange, California. He's also the head of the Houston-based Urban Reform Institute. Uh, he is a regular contributor to City Journal, The Daily Beast, Quillette, Real Clear Politics. He um, is the author of many things, including two books that I'll note here, The Human City, Urbanism for the Rest of Us, and The New Class Conflict. Uh, he is with us today to discuss a new book just came out called The Coming Neo-Feudalism, A Warning to the Global Middle Class. Welcome, Joel. Thank you for joining us. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here. Well, let's just begin with the first sentence of the book, which says, feudalism is making a comeback long after it was believed to have been deposited into the historical dustbin. Straight off, Joel, what are the salient features of the old feudalism that we see arising today? All right. Well, the interesting thing about the feudal period is it shows that, unlike the, the belief that many have that that humanity is, is, is basically an, you know, an arc of history that's going to always move forward over time is actually contradicted by the reality of, of the Dark Ages and the early medieval period. And by that, I, I mean that in the early parts of, of the, you go back maybe 300, 400 A.D., what you begin to see is the erosion of a very vital and very um, creative culture which had emerged um, in the classical world in Greece and, and Rome in particular, and its transformation into something that actually was demographically and economically uh, stagnant, technologically uh, did not um, evolve very quickly. Um, so what you saw was a regression and the other regression, and one that may be, in some senses, most relevant, was the rejection of reason, the rejection of 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 uh, uh, heterogeneity, uh, geneity of of uh, of opinion, and the creation of a very strict orthodoxy that everybody had to follow. And if you don't think that's happening today, um, I don't think you're paying attention. I mean, you've got class class stratification economic stagnation and and a, a kind of quasi-religious um, ideology, which is, you know, it's not religion in the sense that we know it, but it's it, it has become the substitute for religion. 
Indeed. Uh, you say that, quote, a reaction against liberal ideals has been gaining force in many countries. Uh, I mean, we, we can, well, there are many things to say about that. First, maybe you can say when and where has this happened in the most revealing way? Well, I think it's happened in several different ways. And by the way, it, it has right-wing and left-wing implications. Um, if you think about the world after the Second World War and the, you know, and, and look, obviously the United States did some terrible things and some incredibly stupid things, but the world that we created in the United States and with our allies was really remarkable in, in terms of people rising out of poverty, improvement in the conditions of, 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 the, of the working class, um, in, in, in over time the, in, in, in the environment, lots of positive steps. And so people looked at the, the you know, like I'm, you know, I've been most of my, whatever politics I've done has been in the Democratic Party. You know, it was basically, even if you were as a Democrat or a social Democrat, you thought that there were things that needed to be addressed. You basically thought that this this liberal system had actually worked pretty well. You wanted to tweak it. You wanted to change certain aspects of it, but the system worked well, and it worked well not just here, but in the in the UK, um, in in the Euro, in the European Union, in Japan, eventually Korea, Taiwan, and so this was a very exciting period um, in history. And with the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, really seemed to be becoming kind of a universal uh, value. That really changed, uh, began to change, I would say, starting in the 90s with the rise of, of, of the Islamic ideology, which replaced, in some ways, uh, communism as, our, as, as the great opponent, then became, um, began to uh, fall apart as the last decade or two of liberal uh, capitalism produced tremendous returns for the wealthy, decent returns for the very well-educated, and basically nothing for everyone else, and actually was negative. This created um, what I'd refer to in the book as peasant rebellions of different kinds. Um, if you take a look, let's take a look at Europe. You have the rise of, of sort of you know, sort of post-liberal or illiberal regimes throughout Europe, and and the rise of, you know, more traditional right-wing parties. Some of them with you know racist and anti-Semitic um, uh, um, antecedents. And I think you know that's one. The other one is is a a reaction uh, by an increasingly um, authoritarian left that wants to control speech is uh, doesn't doesn't really uh, believe in the flow of ideas thinks that capitalism is, is inherently uh, a bad thing that needs to be replaced um by some form of 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 socialism um and the united states which has historically been resistant to both of those tendencies has now now sees this this in very strong terms a you cannot ignore the the the, the trump Phenomena. I mean, even though I don't agree, disagree with everything Trump does, the sort of mindset, the kind of um, sort of anger, the sort of lack of, of respect for constitutional norms or even 
you know, sometimes it seems like, you know, somebody never potty trained him. You know, there's that. But I think long term, because I think Trump is a individual phenomenon, and I think when he goes, a lot of the things around him will will dissipate, um, is, you know, it's just, you know, he, he, he was elected in the fluke against a terrible candidate. Um, I mean, now maybe he'll survive against another terrible candidate, but I think, you know, I don't, I, I would, I don't think so. But the more important thing in, in in this society, and I think in Western societies, has been the growth of this sort of authoritarian, sort of soft Stalinism, as Fred Siegel calls it. You know, sort of control of speech. I mean, I've myself seen programs that I set up, and you know, if somebody is in quote a racist, even though they're not a racist in the sort of Richard Spencer, David Duke way, but they challenge some of the assumptions, let's say, of Black Lives Matter. They're racist. You can't have them speak. The stu- you know, the students will object. Um, I find myself even sometimes teaching. I'm a, did I say the wrong thing? Did I, did I make some terrible faux pas, you know, or, you know, the fact that, let's say, when I teach a class on propaganda and I have a, a very interesting lecturer um, who talks about uh, the Catholic Church and how it rose and 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 and, and the, the role of theology, is that going to trigger somebody? I mean, these kinds of issues. And, and of course, most tragically, as somebody who had a column uh, many years ago, a uh, monthly column in the New York Times, and, um, uh, to wa- and I worked at the Washington Post, to watch these once great institutions become totally politicized. I, you know, I get the New York Times now um, every day, um, and... Um, I look at it the way a, a criminologist would read Pravda, you know, like, so, you know, so, and, and what we, what we don't understand, and this is a very critical idea in, in, in my feudal, feudalist theory, is that, that what you, what people made the mistake, they always think that, in quote, science and reason was always going to be sort of fundamentally liberal. But actually, if you look at history, um, the the um, the idea of science as kind of a new religion, starting with Saint Simon and going, you know, uh, you know to H. G. Wells and even even, even Marx, even Marx in yeah. a way, right? Yeah, well, scientific socialism. I mean, this notion that there are these you know these clear signals that um, that if you ignore them, you are some sort of you know sort of primitive. Um, uh, you know, those ideas now have become very much um, embedded. So, you know, whether it's the pandemic or climate change, um, you know, there's the science is settled. Even if the science is shown to be repeatedly wrong, exaggerated, misses the target, but it's the science itself. So in the book, I discuss the, this class structure, which is at the very top of the tech oligarchs. They are the most dominant force we've had in the American economy since for at least 100 years, and, and I can explain how they do that. You have a nice term that the, the title of Chapter 4 is, quote, high-tech feudalism. Right, exactly. And that's, you know, and this feudalism is based on the fact that the tech community, which I've covered, I covered Silicon Valley since the 70s, um, has become increasingly concentrated in a handful of companies 
most of whom are all funded by the same people and often run by the same people. I mean, it's a it's a group, um, and they now have extended their power into newspapers, into all sorts of news. Um, the the and and of course um, social media, um, and 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 of course um, into entertainment. Um, this is the most dominant group, and they, I think that. You know, my, my old Marxist friends are always obsessed with Wall Street, and I think these people are infinitely more powerful because Wall Street is just a bunch of greedy jerks trying to make money, and you know they would put money into anything that made money, and and so they don't have a worldview. The tech oligarchs have a worldview. They they think they are you know the cognitive elite who will in quote change the world. Believe me, when when a when a billionaire starts talking about changing the world. Um, you might want to run for the hills. Do, do you remember in the 90s when the promise of the Internet was that it was going to break up big media, big corporations? Well, well, wait a minute. What happened to all the, you know, the thousand you know, million uh, entrepreneurs and, and content creators that, that, that the Internet would, would produce and that, and that we wouldn't have more uniformity of opinion? We would have even greater diversity of opinion. What happened? Well, I think we did have initially some very interesting things, both right and left, interesting points of view because um, you know, mainstream media was, you know, was a, you know a little bit slower and, to adopt. But but I think that that what's happened is that, um, and I discuss this in, in in the book, is the dominance of a handful of platforms who, you know, is where particularly younger people get almost all their information. Um, you know whether it's YouTube or or Facebook, um, and these kind of 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 institutions initially, and I really think initially people like you know, and you can you know you know Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg or um, or even the founders of Twitter, um, and and the people at, at at Google. I think they came in with this idea that you just discussed about this openness that my my. Uh, my old friend, who's now uh, deceased, uh, Al Toffler, talked about this tremendous diversity of opinion, and I think they they liked it. But as they've become more powerful, and they now have within their their own organizations um, little uh, you know cells of 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 the woke, um, they are becoming more and more censorious. Uh, I think you know Zuckerberg has probably resi- resisted it more than most, but it's very clear that almost any of us who do not follow the progressive party line, even though I still consider myself a liberal, those of us who resist that party line are now really threatened with being, you know, like in that old, uh, the, the old uh, Twilight Zone where they talked about you know wishing people into the cornfield. <laughs> That's right. You know that's what that's what's going to happen. In other words, if if I if I write, I, I can pretty well tell that if I write a certain kinds of story, I would be threatened with not having uh, pieces published, or I'd find them very low. Like sometimes um, I'll do a search on Google and I say, I want to find out something contrary to the party line. Well, you can find it in some cases on the fifth or sixth page. So what you've got now is a control of information. So you've got really the two dominant classes of, in, in neo-feudal society. One is the tech oligarchs, and they are 
they are the aristocracy of the feudal era. Um, you know, essentially, they seize the digital territory, just like the barbarian princes seized the territory of the Roman Empire and then consolidated it. Um, and then behind them, because you know, most of these techies really, you know, couldn't produce content of of any. You know, nobody would want to see their content. So they've hired and allied themselves with what I call the clerisy. And the clerisy is really the 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 descendant of the old um you know the what the French used to call the first estate, you know, the you know, the, the church, um and they are the enforcers of orthodoxy. And I think we are now headed towards a period of almost ex- the, the most extreme orthodoxy I've ever seen. Because First, you saw it with the climate issue. The, the, you know, the science is settled. Anybody who disagrees at all with anything, solutions, causes, rates, even if anyone who just cites what IPCC does is a denier. And, and you know, when Reddit decided that they were not, I, as I understand, they were not ready to run anything that was remotely skeptical, that was the beginning. Then you had the pandemic, where you where they're saying, well, certain opinions, even from physicians, that may be different, have to be censored. You know, you, you can't you can't put this up, you can't put that up. And now, with with the you know the the terrible consequences of 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 the um, of the Floyd uh, uh, murder, or if we can call it that, certainly is killing. Um, we now have yet another bunch of strictures. You can't say this. You can't say that. Um, and so although there is a feisty and, you know, sometimes, you know, kind of crazy opposition to all this, it's increasingly marginalized and it only reaches each other as opposed to reaching the general audience. And, you know, the most absurd case recently was the Tom Carton Cotton uh, article, which I wouldn't have agreed with, but I thought was a legitimate point of view from a from a rather influential and intelligent senator, why wouldn't you run it? I mean, could you imagine the New York Times of 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 1965 not running a piece by by Senator Goldwater? You could disagree with Senator Goldwater, but his opinion was worth listening to. So, so these two classes, the oligarchs and the clergy, now they will have some conflicts in the future, which I discuss. They really dominate the society. They have come out of the, the pandemic better than anyone else. The tech people have actually gotten stronger. The clerisy has done fine. Hey, you know, if you're a senior bureaucrat or an academic, you work from home. It doesn't bother you at all. You know, it's been no problem. The two classes that are most hit have been the yeomanry, which is the traditional middle class, small property owners, small business people, artisans, people who are very subject to the market economy. Um, and many of them, by the way, are minorities. I've been, um, I, I live in Southern California, and um, I've been doing interviews with Latino, African-American, inner-city businesses, and they've been destroyed by this. Um, they have a hard time accessing the federal programs. Their customers are now going to Target and Costco to get what they used to get from them. Many of them will never open, or they will take years to get out of debt. Um, in many cases, uh, they cannot compete with better finance chains. So, so the yeomanry uh, have been hit, particularly in states like California, uh, with the high housing prices. 
And then below them, and I just wrote a piece about this uh, um, in, in terms of the, of the recent disturbances, um, what I call the serfs. And these are people who, like the serfs before, will never really own land and, and really have no hope of ascending. What makes a liberal capitalist system work is the idea of upward mobility and aspiration. Maybe not for yourself, but for your kids. That idea has been squashed. Actually, what we're now seeing is the yeomanry, particularly their children, are becoming serfs. And I think that that is part of this kind of angry, white reaction to the recent situation. And by the way, it has two parts. The part we see now is the left wing, you know, the kids who went to college are in debt and were, you know, essentially um, uh, conditioned by their professors to think a certain way. Um, and then you have that other group, you know, the, the sort of, you know, white, more working class kids who are attracted to white nationalism. I mean, both things are happening at the same time, and it reflects the class dynamic that I talk about. Speaking of the universities, you don't call them the ivory tower. You call them the control tower. What do you mean? Well, one of the unfortunate things about contemporary societies is the credentialization. In other words, that, and by the way, this has had terrible ramifications for working class kids in particular. Jobs that used to be learned on the job or jobs where maybe you had a bachelor's or maybe you did community college, but you worked hard, you learned how to do the job well, and you could advance. Now they can say, hey, you want to be a receptionist at Google? You have to have a Harvard degree. You know, I mean, maybe that's an exaggeration. But, but in other words, that means that the path to success is increasingly dominated by what school you went to. I think of our, you know, insane profession, which, you know, I consider myself a journalist at heart and you know, spent most of my life doing that. The great journalists I knew, many of them never even went to college. Some of them never even graduated high school. They were, they learned the, they learned the trade. This was a trade. Today, at the elite newspapers, you probably have more and more PhDs, master's degree from elite universities, um, the working-class journalist that I grew up with is, is now basically an endangered species. Um, and so what, what, what the, you have is, is the control of more and more things. There was a very great article in Quillette, one of my favorite publications, where they talk about the arts and the arts now being, and the novels now are people who have MFAs, you know, Masters of Fine Arts. I don't know. The, the the great writers of the past did Faulkner have a, have an MFA? Did did Saul Bellow have an MFA? Did did uh, John Dos Passos have an MFA? Negative. I mean, great ri- writers came out of life. They came out of life experiences. Now it's become everything has become more and more conditioned. And when you combine conditioning and and credentials with a, a prevailing ideology, you have something that is very culturally um, uh, unattractive. Well, when you look at the, the campus, the professors, and you can say this about the tech oligarchs as well, you hear very loud professions of equality, egalitarianism, and, and, and progression, and anti-discrimination, and so on, while they are, as you say, ruling over what is an increasingly elite and 
intensely hierarchical zone and exclusionary as well. Is it just a matter of their is, is it just a matter of their hypocrisy or is something deeper going on here? Well, I think there are a couple things going on. First of all, it, it would always be interesting, you know, the Japanese always have this, you know, the distinction between what you say and what you actually think. And, and I think there's probably, you know, if you actually sat down and, and you know, you know, either had, a, had a, a glass of whiskey or a joint, whatever would work, and you, with these people, you would probably find out that they are actually very elitist and they think that they're smarter than everyone else. And, um, but they also, as they've become powerful, they've also become very sensitive to public relations. Um, you know, we used to admire the techies for being outspoken, direct, and they could be complete jerks. But they, but they, they sort of, they, they sort of were very independent. I, I mean, I met Steve Jobs, for instance. Steve was a in, in, very unpleasant human being in many ways, but he said what he thought. He didn't, you know. He, he you know, Cook is the exact opposite of Steve Jobs in that sense. Um, Cook is very careful what he says, and and um, you know, Steve wasn't that way. I mean, the the only one of the big tech guys who strikes me as anything in the spirit of the great. Uh, tech entrepreneurs is, is Elon Musk, nutty as he may be. Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel to some extent, but you know, you know, Thiel's an investor basically, and and Musk is a company builder. But Thiel would be too. I mean, Thiel's got his own ideology. But to, to give you give him some credit, he expressed an elitism that is actually probably felt by these these people. Because they look at themselves and say, "Well, I went to Stanford and I got my my you know my my." Uh, my MS in engineering, or, you know, that makes me an intrinsically better. Now, what's really interesting is, if you look at the employment base of these companies, um, their diversity is largely imported labor, you know, mostly from India, the you know, Philippines, China. Um, but actually, rather few African Americans or Hispanics are there. African-American and Hispanic um, wages have actually dropped in Silicon Valley as a lot of the middle management and manufacturing jobs have, 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 uh, have disappeared. But the tech people are kind of, it's, it's kind of a, a two, uh, a, you know, two things. There's their, their own belief in their superiority, which is pretty intense. I remember speaking at an environmental science conference in Santa Barbara, uh, who is Bjorn uh, Lundberg and I were on a panel together, and or with the two of us were on. And what was interesting is then I had lunch with a Silicon Valley venture capitalist, and I said, well, you know, we have this very low birth rate, and, you know, there's going to be a problem when, you know, we have all this aging population. And he said, ah, we don't need people anymore. We just need a few people, and, and, and you know, everybody else can essentially go, go on welfare. So I think where we're headed and I discuss this in neo-feudalism, is what I call oligarchical socialism, where essentially what we do is we give payments to the serfs to keep them from, you know, from, uh, you know, burning things down, you know, very much like the bread and circuses, um, uh, that the, that they, that the, the, you could keep the Roman citizens under control because at one point they had like 200, uh, um, uh, uh, festival days a year, <laughs> you know, um, and of course, you know, lots of wine and food. And here, you know, in 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 the United States, we have lots of food, and you can, you know, you can take drugs or drink or whatever it is that that 
that you want to do, and you can stay home and play video games. And maybe you work occasionally as an Uber driver um, or, or part-time as a barista. This is the future that I think a lot of the techies see because they, they, don't, they see no necessity for, for work per se. They don't see it as a value. For them, it's a value. But they figure the average person, they don't have any pride, you know, in, in work. They'll, they'd be just as happy, um, and they they won't threaten us if we if we just give them some goodies. And that's very much like um, what uh, Marx referred to as a proletarian alms bag, um, and and very much a product of, of of sort of the feudal system, where you you know you give certain things uh, to keep people quiet. Now, look, it's not all the parallels are are exact, but I think if you you want to see the society um, more than any book that predicted this. I would take uh, Brave New World by Huxley as being the closest to what we're headed towards. Last question, Joel. Do you see anything that might stop this slide into neo-feudalism? Yes, I do. I think there are some things that I think are happening. One, I think that people have more common sense than, than the, the, the elites think they have. I think what's going to be, what may be in the United States in particular important is the movement of millennials into suburbs where all of a sudden they own a house and, they, and, um, and maybe they work at home and they see the advantages of community, of safety. I don't think um, my neighbors in Orange County, California, wanted to fund the police. You know, I don't think most people in the south side of Chicago want to defend the police, but that point of view would not go very far in this area. The second thing is that there's a fairly significant migration of people into the middle of the country um, from the coast, um, and I think that will increase. Plus, people in the middle of the country are having children. People on the coast generally are not. So demographically, there's some changes, and my hope is, that people growing up um, in, let's say, Dallas, are going to have a very are going to be influenced by different thoughts than they would, let's say, if you live in Brooklyn, and you're not woke, you know, you're, you know, if you're not a Hasid, you know, you have you have no place at all. Um, so I, I think I think there 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 I think there is still somewhat of a rebellious spirit um, in this country. I, and and it, it, you know it certainly showed in the um, in the Trump election. I just wish that there had been a decent human being who would have uh, would have led in a better way um, than Trump did. But but you know there's still you know, look Britain there was Brexit. Um, there's there's opposition uh, um, on campuses and 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 uh, to uh, to the to the thought police. So I mean I I, I haven't given up all hope. Um, I, I and I think also that the contradictions of the of the progressive hierarchy, uh, whether it's on climate or the pandemic, uh, or on on social policy, will lead to such terrible economic results that maybe people say, well, maybe something we could do something better. Um, so I, I'm not I haven't given up all hope, but I think in order to get people to act. They've got to understand where we're headed if we don't do something. The book is The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, A Warning to the Global Middle Class. It's out with Encounter Books. Joel Kotkin, thank you for joining us. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. 
And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.